This is just nicotine. I'm not getting high on. <laughs> well, that's pretty. It's actually a pretty little bottle. Or yeah, shape. yeah, it's a nice color. It's, yeah. it's something that's not black that I can actually see. And I carry a bag and I lose everything in my bag because every single device is made out of black now. Yeah. So it's like it's like staring into a void. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's really nice to talk with you today, Josh. Um, it's Thanks, been... Leslie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really delighted. And we we talked a couple of months ago and uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. And then we were, we had a brief communication online. I think something that you posted on Twitter, I responded to, and it went back and forth. And I thought, wow, I'd love to actually have a chance to chat with you in longer form about these ideas. And so thank you so much for agreeing to do it. Yeah, my pleasure. So the thing what we were, were talking, we talking about, about? <laughs> I know, I know I had to remind myself too. So uh, you said, uh, you said this, why don't, why you don't need a medical degree or counseling degree or a string of academic letters after your name to notice and point out narcissists. And if you think you do, you're putting yourself in danger. I explain in Don't Diagnose, the second episode of Disaffected. So you were you were um, reposting an older episode where you talked about the uh, the whether a layperson can see and spot uh, yes. narcissistic behavior or personality disorder and whether you need a, a diagnosis or a, a diagnostic training or or power to be able to spot that. And I said, uh, mental health has become overly diagnostic to the point of pathologizing many normal life processes and behaviors. And about cluster B, to what degree are we making being an asshole a medical condition? That's right. I remember the exchange now. Yes. Yeah. 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 This, so is, this is good because this is not the first time this is, other people have, have brought this up and it, it's an, I think we might be having, we might be starting by having a definitional conversation. Yeah, right. I think, and I think that's great. It's good to like define what's, what are we talking about here? And um, you said, I don't see cluster B as a medical condition at all. These conversations must start with careful disclosure and reconciliation of definitional terms. All that underbrush has to be cleared first, or it's talking past the other party. So that's, that's the, the same kind of platform right there. So that maybe that's the foundation. Sounds like a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what do you want to take it from there and talk about what you, oh, how do you define cluster B? Well, okay. So, you, you know, the cluster B personality disorders, of course, are, are borderline narcissistic, histrionic, and antisocial, which most people know colloquially as either sociopathy or psychopathy, although people do define those those things differently as well. So it's really important to be clear when you're talking about those, what exactly do I mean? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> pardon me as I get over this um, sickness I had earlier this week. Um, so personality disorder, I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure how your audience must be more familiar than the average audience with, with what personality disorders or narcissistic behavior is, because I'm sure you've talked about the, that subject matter you know, um, I haven't talked about it enough, but it is an audience that has a lot of, of therapy professionals in it. So I would okay. say that probably so. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, so according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, of course, um, we we organize these personality disorders into clusters and, and this is cluster B, there's clusters A, B, and C. Um, I no longer believe 
that. I, I think that there is a state of mind, a temperament and a disposition that we can accurately observe and say, this is cluster B, mm. right? I no longer believe that most people fall into one of four allegedly discrete subcategories, mm -hmm. right? Like this one's only borderline. This one's only antisocial. This mm -hmm. one's only narcissistic. I see a lot more shading mm -hmm. between there. And if I were, if, if I were going to redesign the classification, um, one direction I would, I would go in, I think would be, and I think maybe the international model is doing this. I think they're calling it the dimensional approach mm. where they, um, let me put it in concrete terms, more people than not, in my estimation, who, who legitimately can be described as cluster B, have a helping of traits from among more than one of the alleged mm -hmm. four disorders, right? Mm -hmm. So you can have a borderline who has heavy narcissistic traits. You can have a histrionic who has um, who has narcissistic traits or or unstable borderline traits. You can see. I think I've seen um, a, a, a more prominent subcategory of person that you might describe as primarily having borderline. Mm -hmm. uh, temperament, but who also falls into what I call just myself, secondary psychopathic states mm. or, uh, having secondary psychopathic traits. Okay. So, um, you know, when it, when it comes to the personality disorders, sure, there are people out there that we can look at and say they, they fit more closely to the classical model of the narcissist or the borderline mm -hmm. or the mm -hmm. histrionic. Um, but there are a I think a lot more people who are a pick a mix. It's like a I don't know. diagram. It, what does it look? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What does it look like to you? I mean, you're the one who's had some actual training here, so. You know, we didn't talk in my in my graduate program an awful lot about personality disorder. That was not something we really got into. And then uh, in uh, professional circles, I do hear therapists. Uh, what I what I've commonly heard when I hear anybody talking about personality disorders is is sort of a reluctance to work with people who have personality disorders, a sort of um, sense that they're not going to be um, they're not necessarily going to benefit from from therapy or or change. And this touches on another thing that we talked about about who changes and why. Why do some people have the ability to recognize? destructive behaviors in themselves and change them despite maybe still having some emotional volatility or some tendencies. Um, and so that's interesting, but uh, I guess the only, uh, the only training I really got around personality disorders was a little bit of DBT training. Okay. And I, I think DBT is a, it, it was developed for work dialectical with... behavioral therapy. Exactly. Developed yes. for, for borderline personality disorder. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so it does seem like that's one uh, modality that, that has some efficacy with these groups. But um, I, I do understand that there's a lot of overlap with these personality disorders. And it's interesting what you've, you've mentioned a couple of times that you prefer the old um, language of character disorders. And I, I actually think that that's really interesting because as we have, um, as we start to adopt new labels for things, we can kind of 
obscure the meaning. It just becomes like this colloquially accepted um, term that almost feels like a euphemism. And yes. so going back to the original kind of is a reminder that it, I, there's something, I, although inherently I don't think personality or character seem one doesn't seem like it excuses or medicalizes something more than the other, but you swapping the word is kind of a reminder that there's ownership in the individual for their behavior, that there's some sort of, this is not all some disease. There's choice. There's, there's a pathway that you're taking when you do this. Yes. Um, and the, when you talk about medicalization, um, mm -hmm. this is a, a, a conversation, I, an ongoing thread of conversation that I pick up with my therapist from time to time. Um, you know, uh, uh, because uh, in his view, sometimes I over-medicalize mm. uh, conditions. That's that's how he sees it. I mean, I'm not sure if we have the same definition of, um, of medicalized. So maybe this is something for me to sort out with him as we continue talking about this. Um, it's what I mean by the fact that I don't see personality disorders um, as as medical is it's not as if it's not as if we know for sure that there's certain brain structures that are you know always present in these mm -hmm. things. I, I do realize there are, there is some research out there that shows some differences in some brain regions in some people who've been diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder or borderline personality disorder. But I, I don't think that that's, I mean, that, that to me is no more solid um, an indicator of, of, of where the condition comes from or why it works the way it does than, than the idea of the so-called gay gene, mm -hmm. which people just can't let go of. There is no gay gene that we've discovered. Right. <laughs> um, so um it, it, there is a there's a moral dimension to this and and character captures that better than other words i think of mm -hmm. and and i think mm -hmm. part of the reason i'm drawn to that older designation is the modern well i would say the modern colloquial but colloquial but also unfortunately increasingly professional view of mental health issues is a lack of responsibility and agency mm -hmm. in the individual. They are conceived of and conceive themselves as victims of and never agents. They're not, they're neither able to help themselves, nor are they responsible for any of the negative things they do that harm other people. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm objecting to because that's just bad character. Mm -hmm. You know, if mm -hmm. you're going to go around and um, whether, you know, physically, emotionally, financially exploit people, be dishonest with them, um, uh, you know, go off on them, be abusive to them mm -hmm. and then say, you know, it's not my fault. You know, I have this mm -hmm. condition. Mm -hmm. Well, it is your responsibility. Yeah. You know, even if it's not your quote unquote fault, mm -hmm. right? Because we, we think we know that, that childhood trauma is the largest component that um, that can put people into this category. And childhood trauma does does lots of things to people. Personality disorders aren't the only outcome, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and 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 certainly not the majority outcome. I'll, um, you know, so people will end up with, you know, I I, I do actually use the term complex post traumatic stress disorder. I think that is a good uh, model and a good descriptor. Um, 
And in my view, every single individual who comes from an abusive, neglectful childhood has some degree of, of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Um, um, but I, th I think I'm getting a little sidetracked here. But yeah, I, the... The, this is about character and and responsibility for yourself and responsibility to other people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting when you talk about your therapist um, saying that you over medicalize. One of the things that I have felt in as I've been studying mental health, I've I've thought that as a profession, the mental health field over medicalizes psychological phenomenon. I have. Uh, there are some people who are really benefited by using mental health diagnoses. And then there are other people who perhaps aren't. And I think that there's this whole segment of the population that when in my training was frequently referred to derogatorily as the worried well, these people who are pretty high functioning, uh, people who want to seek support. We were kind of being pushed into community mental health and into working with people who were more significantly impacted by mental health concerns. And we were being discouraged to go into private practice or work with the, the quote unquote worried well. And this was the population that I really wanted to work with. And I think that okay. um, the diagnostic model doesn't always necessarily suit people very well in that category. It's like somebody who's experiencing grief or communication difficulties or whatever to have to go through and give them a mental health disorder diagnosis. It seems like we're over categorizing and trying to create, um, create labels and, and buckets to put people in when the human experience is really nuanced and varied. And I think that it's not necessarily helpful to be assessing and examining other people from that perspective, especially when you have this army of, I, I would say, not extremely well-trained people. I mean, I, I have done all the diagnostic training that I would do to get a degree in counseling. And I, I feel like I, I would, I'm not sure that it was adequate. I'm sure that then you go on and I, this is the thing I didn't get to do is go on into an internship placement where I'd be mentored by someone else who would, yes. would help me to learn more about refining these skills. And so uh, I would have gone through the training and gained more experience in that, but still you're, it, it just seems like there's a lot of, um, I guess an inter-rater reliability issue, you're not necessarily going to get consistency and you've equipped these people with an awful lot of power to um, to label people in ways that they carry forward, either internally if they see their diagnosis and know something and it means something to them or uh, externally carrying through their insurance and on their permanent medical record. So uh, I, I have some questions about the utility of a lot of psychiatric diagnosis. Um, but interestingly, it, it seems like a diagnosis of a personality disorder, for instance, it both excuses the person to some extent with the assumption that there's an illness 
that with this sort of illness model, like you're not really responsible. And I've seen it like on Twitter where people are like, well, I have BPD. So, you know, it's like there, it's like an illness. I can't be held responsible because I have this thing. So you all, you both give someone a, a kind of a get out of jail free card that does that excuses bad behavior, but it also kind of at the same time on the other end of the spectrum, it sort of disempowers them from being able to improve themselves. It, it takes away some of their agency. It says there's something wrong with you and, and maybe you're untouchable. And then you see these therapists who don't even want to want to work with them. So, uh, you know, kind of both sides of the coin, it's both disenfranchising and also infantilizing. So. Yeah, it it can cut both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I I think that's why I think that's why I have said I don't like I don't like the medical conception of of personality syndromes and personality disorders because I I do not see them as giving an excuse a moral excuse for for bad behavior or for destructive behavior. I simply don't grant that excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know what, neither do the courts for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something yeah. that people should remember, you know, um, just because you have a mental health diagnosis doesn't mean that a, a U.S. court of law finds you not responsible for shooting somebody mm-hmm. or, or for stealing from, yes, we can all, we can all cite instances and sadly more of them in recent years. Mm-hmm. We can all cite instances where the courts have indeed treated violent people, exploitative people, con artist type people as if they were victims of a sickness and couldn't help mm-hmm. themselves. But overall, I mean, at least in sort of established case law, mm-hmm. you know, for example, um, you know, the psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder is not uh, does not qualify for the insanity defense. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're not going to get out of jail. Literally, you're not going to get out of jail <laughs> because you say, well, I have antisocial personality disorder. Right. But I think let, let's go back to let's go back to the particular thing that, that you and I were talking about that you cited but your statement that said um, about people. You know, what's the difference between just being an asshole yeah. and pathologizing being an asshole? OK, so. Can you say a little bit more about that? How do you think about that? Um, well, I think that there can be a sort of a getting stuck in a pathway for some people, a pathway of resentment, of feeling like a victim, of feeling just frustrated and put upon by life. And and it can be really legitimate. Like I, I think of my, so I'm not going to call my mom an asshole, um, but my mom is sort of this this model for me of why I wanted to go into therapy in the first place, why I wanted to work in this kind of field. She was somebody who had a horrible childhood. She was in and out of foster care. She was uh, physically and sexually abused. She was she just had a nightmare childhood. It was uh, heartbreaking the things that she went through, and she was wounded by that in a way that she never recovered from. And these were serious uh, problems. Anybody would say, yes, you were victimized. Yes, this was terrible. But it was like there was a hole in her that couldn't be filled. A bitterness and a resentment and a um, 
just a sense that life had done her wrong. And she suffered from depression and also from resentment and envy and just, it was, and it feels like, it's like a personality pathway that got turned on. And so if there were certain times when this would kick in and she would be, um, it was like, there was no turning the train around. And I don't, you know, the word asshole is really flippant, but it was a choice for her to go into that kind of an attitude. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot for a lot of people, it's a choice. How are, how are you going to frame yourself up against other people? And it's the hardest thing in the world to turn off that, that attitude, to recognize that you're doing that and to yeah. stop doing it. But it is a choice. It is a pathway that you're choosing when you're behaving in, in a certain way towards all your relationships in your life. Yes. Well, and it, it, that this is interesting to me because i've heard i've heard that exact um sort of objection before um i've seen it many times people say um oh we've got a you know we've got a name and we've got a disease name for everything but you know that's just being an asshole mm-hmm. um and i've i've had people who've who've objected really stridently mm-hmm. on social media to things i've said about the typical behaviors of personality disordered uh, people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say, you're just being an asshole and you're just excusing them. No, I'm not excusing them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, uh, anybody who watches my show disaffected knows that I don't excuse this behavior. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're calling them uh, out. But the thing is, I guess my answer to that would be every, every human can be an asshole. Mm-hmm. We all have days when we are an asshole in one way or another Mm -hmm. to one person or another. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have extended periods of assholery, Mm -hmm. right? This is a human. And this is another thing that the traits and behaviors, most of the traits and behaviors, I think that, that fall under the cluster B personality disorder um, system. Most of these are, they're not personality disorder traits. Mm -hmm. They're human traits. Mm -hmm. Almost all of us, can have or will express some of those at some point in our lives. That doesn't yeah. mean that personality disorder. But there, there is a reason why why we have a category called personality disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, to, because it's abnormal. The yeah. severity, the pervasiveness of the behavior throughout different domains of your life, different relationships in your life, work mm-hmm. and home. Mm-hmm. These things. There are people who have this pervasive and severe um, use of these behaviors and attitudes, and it does, they are distinguishable from quote unquote normal people, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there's a certain level of assholery. I get, I, I flippantly responded to somebody on Twitter. Um, oh no, you really? <laughs> um, who said that? And I said, he said something like, you know, we used to just call that being an asshole. And I said, that kind of asshole that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. that is what narcissistic personality disorder is. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, you know, I I was trying to to get across to the guy, we're not disagreeing you and I, Mm -hmm. that this is awful behavior, terrible behavior. Um, And in a pattern like this, Mm -hmm. inexcusable, you know, this is really consistently abusive asshole behavior. Mm -hmm. But we have a name for people who are 
extreme to this degree. And, and that's when I also try to introduce, and, and this is something that takes, I repeat this a lot mm-hmm. because it is very easy for it to slip out of all of our minds. And I think it needs the repetition. Explanations are not excuses. Mm-hmm. Miles of difference. They're not yeah. the same. No, I think I can, that's true. Yeah, you can either be trying to understand or you can be trying to judge, but understanding something doesn't mean that there's not responsibility for the right. behavior. Yeah. You know, I I understand now at um at this point in my life that I am ruled by cats, as you see. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I am too. <laughs> um you know, as I won't go into the whole big blah, 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 but, you know, for those who who are not familiar with with my show Disaffected or what I say, you know, I was raised by a, a mother with a very severe uh, set of cluster B, set of cluster B personality disorders. Um, I, you know, if I were going to use the regular terminology, I'd say she suffers from both borderline and narcissistic personality disorders. Mm-hmm. Um and a quick sketch for anybody, at least my generation or older, you want to know what, what kind of, of parent my mother was. Um, think of a, a non-famous, non-rich version of Mommy Dearest, Joan mm. Crawford um, yeah, and uh, her daughter, Christina Crawford. Wow. That that was our childhood, my siblings and I. Mm-hmm. So um, I now understand, because it wasn't until seven years ago that I twigged to the idea of personality disorders it wasn't until then that i i finally had a way to understand why my mother acted the way she did mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and it retroactively made our childhoods make much more sense to us mm-hmm. so there's an mm-hmm. you know it's not a total explanation but mm-hmm. you know it's like okay like many kids from abusive families, my siblings and I thought that our mother was crazy in this particular and unique way that no one else had ever seen before. Yeah. And yeah. there was no explanation for, and it bowled me over to realize, no, mm-hmm. it wasn't particular to my mother, that this is a known syndrome. This is, um, a, and other people have gone yeah. through it. A familiar So pathway. I understand, yeah. you know, like your mother, Leslie, mm-hmm. You know, my mother um, was abused and neglected pretty badly in her childhood. And mm-hmm. that is, you know, that is what turned her into the kind of person that she is. Mm-hmm. So I can explain this to a certain mm-hmm. degree. There's always some uncertainty. Mm-hmm. I can explain it, but it doesn't excuse child abuse. Mm-hmm. That's probably the the clearest way I, c- I could get people to understand explanations are not excuses. Mm-hmm. So we, we we know that we don't excuse child abuse. We don't say, oh, you have had a bad day, so therefore it's okay that you backhand your kids repeatedly, or it's okay that you lie to them and gaslight them and right. and you know rip them out of bed at midnight to to reclean the dishes and all this stuff. No, we're not saying that's okay. Mm-hmm. We're saying we understand where that behavior is coming from, but that doesn't excuse you from doing it to your kids. So explanations are not excuses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's excellent and well said. I think that's absolutely right. Um, it, you know, interestingly, it seems like we uh, there is so much more discussion of narcissism culturally over the last I don't know how many years, maybe like ten years or so. We hear yeah, everybody, so. everybody's About a narcissist. Years. Yeah, my ex is a narcissist. How to spot a narcissist? Why I always date narcissists? My mom is a narcissist. It's just like this really. And something that's interesting, I uh, I 
have watched a couple of these YouTube channels where it's usually a woman who's talking about how to identify the narcissist in your life. And um, some of the things that I've noticed is if, if we're describing these conditions, it's really easy to see a narcissist describing everybody else in their life this way, seeing everything else in terms of disorder, because to the disordered individual, it can come off like that. Uh, they can end up yep. experiencing relationships in that way. And so I've thought, I'm not sure how useful it is to have this application of like so psychological language escape the lab and have everybody calling everybody else a narcissist. And I've, I've thought that this on, in some ways it's sort of a, a parallel to the way that intersectionality has escaped the sociology lab. Like there's some okay. utility to describing uh, demographics in the way that the social justice movement wants to do it, but it doesn't make sense when you're out there applying it to every single person and doing these sloppy DEI things that end up villainizing certain groups of people. And it's, you're talking about things in a very different way. So, um, what are your thoughts about the the sort of general narcissist discourse in the culture? Uh, my thoughts are not settled about yeah. it. Um, I'm not sure. I, I see the problem that you're pointing to. Mm -hmm. um, and other people have pointed to that problem too, with everyone calling everyone else a narcissist. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I think the problem with that is... <clears throat> Uh, what's the best way to frame this? Um, it can it can be an excuse that a person uses for him or herself mm -hmm. uh, to project their own bad behavior onto somebody else and to take no responsibility for their part in the relationship. So that I think is one of the major dangers. It's it's creating a um, it's creating a um, I'm I'm the eternal victim and this one is the eternal persecutor, mm -hmm. right? And most human relationships are not like that. You know, mm -hmm. we, when we get into conflict with each other, both parties can behave badly. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, and, and, and I have to, you know, I have a personal interest in this, you know, that, that I know is very obvious to people. I do believe, Leslie, that, you know, dis despite, despite where it goes off the rails culturally, Mm -hmm. Despite that, I still do believe we have a major cultural problem with issues related to narcissism. Mm -hmm. I do believe that's real. Mm -hmm. I don't believe it's all just people talking about it too much and overapplying it. I think mm -hmm. there's a real nugget there, mm -hmm. not just a nugget, but I mean, the entire thesis of my show, Disaffected, is that well, the tagline is sort of domestic abuse has gone public and feral, mm -hmm. right? It's not domesticated anymore. Yeah. Um, the connection that I made when I realized seven years ago during that cr a crisis point in my life where i i had to I had to forcefully and legally eject my mother from from my property, my home, and my life mm -hmm. uh, was that yes, this is a woman with a very severe personality disorder. Um, she had not gotten better from the time I was a child and all the years I lived away from her. And then she came back into my life in my late thirties and, and early forties. You know, this was a lifelong syndrome for her. 
and mm -hmm. she was just as abusive and in some ways even worse. Mm -hmm. um, and that's real, you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, and my mother is not the only person like this. My mother isn't going to change and people who are that deep into it are not going to change. Some people are, will be able to make some progress. Yes. But I want, but I think that I have an interest in getting people to see that there is such a state that we call, whether we call it, we're not going to call it cluster B forever. There'll be another name for this 50 years down the road. Mm -hmm. uh, we used to call it moral insanity. That mm -hmm. was one of the general labels that was attached to that, right? So there will be different terminology, but the referent, the thing itself that exists in the real world does in fact exist in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, there is this personality type. There are these behavioral types. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that our culture, uh, in terms of what we're told to value, how we are told to treat other people, what we are told to expect from other people, how to vote, how to allocate our taxes, all of this just stinks of cluster B to me, Leslie. It mm -hmm. really does. Mm -hmm. You know, we are being, and I, I, I feel that I have the same frust. Well, maybe it's not the same frustration as you have, but I have a major frustration about. Uh, the overuse of words like gaslighting and things like that, because these are important real phenomena. There is such mm -hmm. a behavior as gaslighting. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. not the same thing as somebody being somewhat dishonest or shading the truth. It's It, it really does mean something. Mm -hmm. and, and, and when you're in a relationship with somebody who gaslights you, who tries, which, you know, just means tries to make you believe that your perceptions of the world or of them or their mm -hmm. behavior are inaccurate, that you made it up, that you dreamt mm -hmm. it, you hallucinated it, or you're paranoid and you're fantasizing, that is an abusive behavior. And a person who falls under the sway of that and doesn't realize this is being done to them, they really are being harmed by that person. It's legitimate to say that. So I, I don't want to give it up. I don't want to give up narcissistic, um, cluster B, gaslighting simply because they're overused. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know how we address that. I don't mm -hmm. know how to keep holding on to that in the right place because um, it, it does get very confusing. Well, it's, you know, when you talk about the culture sort of shaping or perpetuating these things, uh, that's that was another thing I really wanted to talk with you about because you'd mentioned something about how internet conversation I gosh was it it was either in a conversation you were having with someone or in another Twitter thread talked about how our internet use social media use actually increases some of these behaviors and, and yes. sort of encourages these behaviors. And I've had the same thought. And I, I can remember in the early, what was it like the late nineties when reality TV became a big deal? I yep. thought, this is terrible. This is awful. This yes. is encouraging everybody to see themselves as the star of their own show. And what, what are we doing but perpetuating narcissism, which is basically pathological selfishness and pathological need to see oneself reflected in in the experiences one has with others to not be directing yourself outward, but to actually be directing yourself back inward. And so this reality TV phenomenon seemed to really start that. And then all of a sudden now we've got Facebook and MySpace and everybody's their own reality TV. Everybody's cultivating an avatar 
we're putting filters on ourselves and we're thinking about how we look all the time and how we sound and what our reputation is. And, uh, you know, it does seem like there's this, if you can create the conditions for a personality disorder through child abuse and neglect, look at your sweet cat. (laughs) She's so cute. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I would, I, 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 uh, viewers who don't like cats, I apologize. There's no point in me uh, putting her down because she, she'll just come back. <laughs> well, it's, she's, she's adorable. She's, she's very sweet. And if people are just listening, they're missing out. But um, <laughs> the, so if we can create the conditions for someone to have a disordered personality through abusive and neglectful childhoods, which leave people in a state of unfulfilled victimhood, resentment, and, and pain and cause them to, to close in in certain ways and lash out in certain ways and be sort of stunted developmentally in these particular ways. We can also do so through encouraging overly narcissistic behaviors um, in another direction with this, with this. uh, And so anyway, I guess these are some things I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on yeah, I think issues. social media is one of the um, is I think one of the worst things to happen to our society. I but prior to social media, I I would have said reality television because I agree with you that 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 and I don't it's chicken and egg for me, Leslie. I don't know if I don't know the degree to which the rise of reality TV was more a reflection of who we were becoming. And this was a symptom of it and how much of reality TV started to shape our future behavior Mm -hmm. and our expectations. Uh, These things tend to go in circles and, you know, chicken, egg, chicken, egg until it's, it's like orbiting a planet. And all you know is that they're orbiting each other. You can't figure out who started, who was there first. Right. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that um, social media is, is, It is the easiest way to indirectly guide a person into abusive behavior, both to themselves and to other people, narcissistic behavior, unstable behavior. Um, And um, I think about this, and I've been thinking about it a lot this past week because, excuse me, you know, being down with this uh, cold and fever that I've had. Um, I haven't, you know, I I wasn't on Twitter. I mean, I looked at Twitter a few times to clip a few news stories, mm-hmm. but um, I'm one of those people who can get really hooked on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a problem for me at various points. And I have displayed cluster B type behavior on Twitter. Um, I'd be a liar if I said it if, if I said I didn't, you know, I'm not proud of that. Um, but the, for Pete, especially for people who are very emotionally sensitive, I'm one of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, the onslaught of the perception that millions of people are looking at what you say and waiting to pounce on you and judge you for it can, can really stoke a lot of paranoia. Mm -hmm. And it, it, you know, I know that in many times it sort of flips a switch in me 
that makes me think of everybody out there who's coming at me. They've got bad intent. They want to tell me I'm stupid mm. or that I'm wrong or they want to humiliate me or, you know, this, mm -hmm. that or the other thing. Right. Yeah. So it's very easy to lose your perspective. But the the you know, the plain fact is that this is a medium that is shorn of all contextual clues. Mm -hmm. There's no tone of voice. There's no facial expression. There's no body language. Mm -hmm. um, I can, ha and I think a lot of people could probably um, understand this as well. Think about, you could be in a group of people who are mm -hmm. having a rousing political debate around a lunch table or in mm -hmm. someone's living room. And you can get quite heated, right? Mm -hmm. You can disagree with your friends and say, I can't believe you're gonna vote for that ass. How many times mm -hmm. are you gonna let her fool you over and over again? Mm -hmm. um, and you can have these even very strong disagreements without feeling like, uh, you know, that you're being attacked because someone disagrees with you. Mm -hmm. But I often, and I know that this isn't always true. It's a perception. And it's, you know, it's one of the reasons I have to limit myself on social media. Mm -hmm. It's much easier for me to feel on social media that when someone disagrees with me, they're not simply disagreeing with me factually. They're trying to dominate and have their voice cover mine over, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and some of this is a hangover um, from changing my mind politically and culturally as significantly as I have. I used mm -hmm. to be a, a hard leftist. Mm -hmm. um, I was a wokey. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I would have called myself a male feminist. I would have called myself, um, you know, um, you know, an advocate for the poor and the downtrodden and the this, that, and the other thing. Not that I'm, you know, not that I'm saying nobody should advocate for people in need. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I had built that identity, that leftist identity, that savior identity. Um, and when I broke away from that, you know, my change of mind happened over the course of years. It's been about seven years now. It's a gradual process. I went from being uh, you know, super, super liberal to, I guess what many people would call a conservative, at least a small C conservative. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, as, as has happened for many, many people um, in recent years, I lost almost all of my friends um, and my social contacts, um, you know, people that I used to spend time with sometimes even in person, you know, would no longer speak to me you get excommunicated, right? When you start disagreeing with with left liberal activism, you get excommunicated. And, it, you know, there's still, there's still a sensitive sore spot there. So, you know, when such people come at me on Twitter, um, I take it harder than I should. And I, and I lash back sometimes too indiscriminately. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we see this behavior in a lot of people. You know, a lot of people that we wouldn't, you know, say throughout all of the, you know, if we could look at them in their entire life, you know, at work, at home, in their family relationships, we wouldn't say this person is is a narcissist, this person is a psychopath, this person is an unstable borderline, but we can sure act that way online, some of us. Yeah, and I, I think it's really, um, I, it's really refreshing how you package that in terms of your own behavior 
and one's own behavior, that we all have these tendencies. I think that's such an important thing that you're saying. It's like, we're all falling on a spectrum. We all can display these certain behaviors. These are human behaviors. It's sort of the language of emotion and the language of interaction. And some people can um, can end up getting stuck in it to the extent that it becomes disordered. And some people can just fall into it from time to time. But these are not things that are yeah. so alien that that here's a guy who does this thing and here's me being perfect over here. Uh, right. That's really important. It seems like one of the, the hallmarks of a personality disorder is the, the devaluation and underestimation of the other and the elevation of the importance of the self and this, the, the one's own experience. So one's own emotion becomes really big and we, we fail to see and connect and empathize with the other. And when you're describing that experience online of being able to sort of um, fall into assumptions about the, the intentions of another, we can start to feel attacked, like you say, or feel like someone is, is slandering us or coming at us. We can also, um, as you say, we're, we lack context. We don't even see the person's face. We don't, right. we, you know, maybe we see their face in a little, a little circle or whatever, but we don't see them moving and, and get the context. And so it flattens the person down and it encourages that exact underestimation and devaluation of the other. And so that we're just interacting with projections at this point and it becomes yes. it's like it's so easy for us to then engage in that that uh i guess overly emotional overly self-ish way that and and when you get a whole sea of this and when you get people who are doing this more than they're interacting with people in real life what are we doing to ourselves we're deranging ourselves is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And I know this because I've done it to myself. <laughs> you know, I've repeatedly deranged myself through excessive social media use. So, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it, it's not good. And it's, you know, I wish it were possible, you know, the kind of conversation we're having about this stuff right now, it's not possible, <laughs> but I, I, I wish it were possible sometimes to have that kind of conversation on social media because yeah. um, I can understand. Uh, well, let's take a particular example. Um, and I'm I'm using personal. Exa I, <laughs> I don't mean to sound narcissistic, but I'm using personal examples because I know I know them inside and out because I've I've lived them. So, you know, find an, anybody watching, you know, find an analog in, in your life or in someone else's life. And and the pattern probably is is the same, even if the issues aren't the same and the people aren't the same. Um, you know, uh, online feminists, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. um, I have a real hard time with them, mm -hmm. a really, really hard time with them. And they have a very they have a very hard time with a person like me. Mm -hmm. Um especially a man like me. They punish other women who disagree with them, but they certainly punish men. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, even though I disagree with them, I can understand a lot of these self-declared feminists do truly believe that we live in a patriarchy where men are controlling their lives. They do believe that they have 
they have mostly been abused in their lives by men and and many of them have been i mean i had an abusive stepfather a very violent abusive stepfather i know i know the reality of male violence not just by observing it but by having been repeatedly victimized mm. viciously by it as a child so i know that it's real and i know the fear that women have and that children have of violent men it's mm. very very real what i didn't credit until I had my sort of awakening about these things seven years ago, um, was the, the the equally damaging and and yes yes equally damaging emotional violence mm -hmm. that um, certain kinds of women um, can inflict and mothers yeah um, is just as destructive. It's not better than. It's not easier to bear than. Uh, I mean, obviously, if you've mm -hmm. got somebody who's really, you know, a, a rapist, you know, a murderer, mm -hmm. you know, obviously that's about as extreme as you can get. But I understand that these women feel that men are oppressing them, uh, not taking them seriously or are are, are messing with uh, some of their prerogatives or this, that or the other thing. If I take them on if I take them on good faith that this is their genuine perception, then I can understand why they react the way they do. Mm -hmm. Right. But I personally, it's a, it's an emote. It's ugh, I hate to use the word, but it's an easy trigger for me. Mm -hmm. um, especially the feminists, because I, I felt so badly burned when I moved away from agreeing with feminism Um and and I don't agree with it anymore. I th I think that modern feminism is is um, a series of cognitive distortions, cognitive and emotional distortions. Just as I think that the same is true of trans ideology, mm -hmm. uh, queer ideology, uh, anti racist ideology. All, many of the people who subscribe to these belief systems, and again, you know, as a reminder, I was a hard lefty. I was a woke liberal. I believed these things. Mm -hmm. I was wrong about so much. I mean, I was wrong about almost everything. Mm -hmm. um, so I understand that they genuinely feel the way they do, but it's very hard to find any common ground with them because the degree to which, for example, an online feminist does not want to hear what a man like me has to say mm -hmm. when I say things like, you know, women on, on, on average are more socially responsible for promulgating trans ideology than men are men have have narcissistic men have taken advantage of it you know to mm -hmm. get onto women's sports teams and and you know there are bad men who are taking advantage of this and and who are part of the activism as well but i see it as a, a very fem female driven um social and legal uh, phenomenon and they get very angry and they think that a man like me saying that it, i'm an acting patriarchy by doing that i'm i'm blaming women for the horrible things that men are doing to women um but i think i'm losing my train of thought here um let me leave that there why don't you talk for a while <laughs> i'm sorry i'm still have no, no. brain oh i bet yeah no i think that's an interesting point and i think i the online, uh, you know, I haven't, I've been on Twitter for a little over a year. That's how long I've been interacting with it. And I, 
Uh, I still feel like I'm wading cautiously into the water and the water's a little cold, so I'm standing above it. So I, I do a little, I'll, I'll get in there a little bit, but I, I guess because I have been somewhat removed, I, I've been disturbed by social media for a long time and have interacted with it kind of cautiously. I, I loved Instagram okay. for a long time because I'm a photographer and I, I like the pretty pictures, but it's so ad driven now. And it feels like it's such a data mining site that I, I don't love it anymore. I never really liked Facebook and I didn't really understand Twitter. So I I'm kind of coming into yep. this fresh in my forties, you know, and I'm like, what is this crazy land that we're in where we talk to each other this way? Um, but I see, I, I see what you mean. And one of the things that I guess maybe I'm being too simplistic, maybe I'm essentializing too much, but it seems like one of the major problems that we that we have when we describe what we don't like about woke and DEI, what we don't like about the trans ideology, what we don't like about um, maybe online uh, feminism or whatever different thing we're describing. It's all coming back to this process of devaluating and uh, devaluing and underestimating the other. It's all these okay. people who are at the allyship is the problem that that attitude that like you called it the savior complex, that kind of, the the other is not capable of either understanding this higher level concept that I have access to or of defending themselves. So I'm going to be continually uh, sort of trying to control and shape the world for other people and not taking responsibility for myself. So there's I, I'm wondering how much of that is a is a similar process playing out in all of these circles i experienced the the you know feminism i don't even i don't really even know what that means anymore i used to think that feminism meant the assertion of the value of a woman being equal to that of a man and mm -hmm. i think that seems Which if, if it means that then that's then the vast majority of the population agrees with that Right. Yeah. To that extent. Right. Yeah. Not everybody. There are some actual misogynists out there. Right. There there are nearly yeah. as numerous. And there are misandrists as well. Lots of people who lots of women who very openly hate men and are are fine doing it. So, you know, what's interesting about this? I, I the, the terms misogyny and misandry. Mm -hmm. Um. I this is not this is half baked, so you're getting the half baked version. And maybe I love maybe half baked. You, maybe it's maybe my your favorite. Help bake it fully okay. for me. Um, I'm not sure we're using those words. Okay, so if we say you're a misogynist, you hate women. Who who are the kinds of men that feminists call misogynists most frequently? Um, today it seems to me to be the men who call themselves trans women, mm -hmm. right? Okay. You'd say, I'm a woman, you know, just I'm a woman because I've declared that I'm a woman. And I'm, of course, it's insulting six ways yeah. from Sunday. Yeah. You know, it's absolute yeah. nonsense. Um, and some of those men um, really are, we can see it. They are in fact predatory. Mm -hmm. We can see. Yeah. You that see examples of those online. Mm-hmm. Yep. Their entire motivation is, in fact, to invade women's physical privacy. Mm -hmm. It is, in fact, to maneuver women into sexually dangerous situations. It is, in mm -hmm. fact, to exploit them. So, yes, there are bad, bad men. They're mm -hmm. doing this. But 
is what's motivating them misogyny, meaning they hate women as women, hmm. right? I'm not sure that they hate, if they hate women, do they really hate women as women or do they hate a caricature of what mm. they believe women are. And I think the same thing could be said for accusations of misandry. Mm. Um, yes, I mean, I'm a target of a lot of these women who who we might describe as misandrists. Mm. Right? I'm not the only one and I'm certainly not the biggest one, but I'm definitely a target for them. <laughs> um, and they really do appear to hate men. But if I'm gonna be logically consistent, I have to apply it on this side of the equation too and say, is it really men that they hate or do they hate a caricature of men and maleness? And I think for both of those that it's, I think it's a caricature. It's not really who men and women are. You know Does what? this make any yes, sense? Yes, it makes really good sense. And it's it's right in line with the thing that I was just kind of stumbling to try to say, which is this idea that when we see the other we're enacting with our projection of them rather than with who they really are. We don't see them as the full, like I'm not looking at Josh. I'm not looking at a man who's got whatever complex background and inner thoughts and whatever you have. I'm projecting my image of a man that I don't like onto you. And I'm looking at what you do that's consistent with that. And then I'm interacting with that projection instead of seeing you as the complete person that you are and giving you the, uh, the credit of being another person who's as fully human as I am. And so there, that that right. same pathway, it's that same undervaluation of the other. And it's not just, yes, and it's not just how we interact with individual men and women mm -hmm. uh, using that projection. It's the, ex we extrapolate that projection onto the sex as a whole, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that's a really big problem. So, or onto ooh. white people, or onto, or onto you white know, people, or onto uh, straight cis people, or whatever cis means people. Or frankly, you know. you know, and you know, again, and you know, I have lots of strong opinions, but but you know, to the extent that that you think that, that you disagree with this, or you think I'm not thinking about it right. For goodness' sake, please tell me. Um, uh, I don't want to just assume automatic agreement, but it seems to me that any kind of person any characteristics, skin color, sexuality, whatever whatever it is, anything th that is considered normal these mm -hmm. days is considered the oppressor. Mm -hmm. um, that if you're normal, if you're not a marginalized identity, that there's something wrong with you, that normal is abnormal. Yeah. Almost. No, I think that's exactly right. It, I think that's, that's reversal. the whole idea of folding in the margins on everything you're supposed to be embracing the thing that stands outside and and centering that so we're always centering whatever is marginalized and that's that's a continual process of pushing out and and disrupting normalcy which is queer theory right and you know this is it ever queer theory my goodness um there is we have as a society and a culture, we have, forgive the phrase, problematized normalcy. Mm -hmm. It We don't often say it this explicitly, but the left's idea about this is that anything that is normal is itself a problem. Yeah. Um, 
and, you know, academic achievement, you know, meeting standards, showing up to work on time, um, doing reciprocal give and take in relationships where, you know, you are just as willing to cut somebody else slack as you demand that they cut you slack when you're not at your best, that, that this sort of normal behavior, the normal minimum standard of decent uh, productivity at work, um, mm -hmm. Upholding your end of a friendship or or romantic relationship is is seen as as somehow um, oppressive, and you know I remember this from a lot of this is emotional immaturity. Mm. I think is one of the major concepts underlying everything we're talking about, mm -hmm. because one of the ways you can describe a cluster B personality disorder is it is it is a case of arrested emotional development, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's, you know, the borderline who is stuck in the toddler phase, you know, because her needs were not met or she was abused during an early formative period when her parents should have been teaching her how to act, how to self-actualize, how to self-regulate. She didn't get that. So she becomes stuck in that, um, in that state, the narcissist, uh, very similar, mm -hmm. right. Um, and, and the histrionic and the psychopath, um, this is arrested emotional development. These these people that we can genuinely describe as as having these fully disordered personality styles mm -hmm. really do have missing pieces of their personality that are not there that should have formed during childhood and during adolescence, mm -hmm. but could not because they were neglected or abused. Mm -hmm. um, uh, emotional immaturity is not seen as emotional immaturity anymore. It's seen as being authentic or mm -hmm. as being, you know, real and all this stuff. And it's, it's, it's Leslie, I think it's all connected. I think it's all connected to the decline in scholastic achievement and mm -hmm. not just scholastic achievement, but the fact that our public schools now are the very people running our public schools themselves right out in front of the camera, in front of the world mm -hmm. are saying, we are lowering standards. We are not mm -hmm. grading grammar. We are not grading arithmetic. We are not, they're telling you that they're doing this. Yeah. Like, can you imagine, I mean, we're similar in age. Can you imagine any of our teachers from primary school ever having an attitude like this? <laughs> not at all. No, 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 no. It's, I mean, it's, we are in, in so many ways, I'm so worried for our culture. We are in full moral reversal mm, mm -hmm. on every level in our culture. And it really frightens me. Um, what do you think can be done about it? What is the, what is the point of calling out these processes? Like, you know, pointing out the, the way that we're encouraging narcissistic behavior. What is the point of doing it? Is there a way to help people backtrack or recognize what's going on? Uh, I'll answer for my own motivations. Um, and I have, I have two, I think two primary motivations because I talk about this incessantly every week on the show, as you know. Um, and, and, you know, now I, I have a coaching and consulting practice. People can come to me um, for difficulties in their lives with a person that they, you know, they believe may be personality disordered or not. There are plenty of people who come and say, I'm not sure whether mom or dad or my cousin is personality disordered, but they have this pattern of, um, dysregulated emotional behavior and mm -hmm. all of my, all the normal ways I know how to resolve conflict with this person don't work. And I mm -hmm. don't know what to do. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So I have my two motivations are I, I do want to contribute to the cultural conversation and awareness about this because I want people to push back mm-hmm. and to reclaim some normality. I want us to claw back some of our normal standards for mm-hmm. decent, civilized, humanistic behavior. Mm-hmm. And and in order to get there, we have to we have to identify the problem. We have to be able to specifically point and say this is what's wrong or these things are what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we do have a big cultural cluster B problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but secondly, I want, to, I want people as individuals to be able to recognize what I could not recognize until I was 41 years old. Why? Because assume, just take as given assumptions that somebody has a personality disordered parent, a mom or a dad who's a narcissist or a borderline or a sociopath. Um, And they're an adult now and they feel that nothing has changed since childhood or that they still feel like a, a frightened child when interacting with mom or dad. They don't know how to say no. They overextend themselves. They do everything their parent wants them to. They they acted as as in a as a kind of a heat sink for their parents' emotional diatribes. You know, they're a target of emotional abuse. I believe that people need this is part of don't diagnose as well. Why I say you know you don't need a clinical degree to recognize this stuff. Um, there are people out there personality disordered people with whom you cannot negotiate in the normal way that you negotiate with normal range people. It will not work. You can't set the same kinds of give and take boundaries that you would with a normal person because this person will run roughshod over them. If you can't recognize that the person in your life, be it your boss, your father, your husband, your wife, your cousin, your sister, whoever it is, If you can't recognize that this person has a disordered personality style that does not respond to normal human give and take, then you will forever be a victim of that person. And I don't want people to be victims, right? There is such a thing as victimhood. Mm -hmm. You know, we can and we can be victimized and we are. But even when we are genuinely victimized, we are the only people who can stop that victimization. Mm-hmm. You can't make your dad be not a sociopath if he's a sociopath. It's mm-hmm. not possible. Um, I, you know, I want. So that's why I talk about this as much as I do. And and on the societal level, I want people to recognize that the government and the media are acting exactly like a personality disordered tyrannical parent would. Mm-hmm. Even if they seem softer on the outside, the, the the real feminine takeover of politics, you know, all this talk of compassion and empathy and, and all this stuff is has lulled people into believing that, you know, a lot of these people who preach how we should be more compassionate and empathetic are not at all compassionate or empathetic to the people that they want to behave this way. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to be able to extract resources from these people and have them work on their campaigns or, uh, or their social justice issues, but they won't return. um, They won't return it in, in, in normal reciprocity. They're simply extracting 
I think we need to see this mm-hmm. and we need to name it as at least a first step if we're going to do anything about it. Yeah, I think I think that's really I gosh, my mind is moving a, a lot of different directions as you're talking and when you're describing the government and the I guess the the state, the media as this cluster B parent, this over uh it's it it again it comes back to this idea that I'm going to think for you, I'm going to protect you, but I'm going to protect you in the way that I think you need to be protected, which means that you may not be allowed to go outside because you wouldn't be safe. Yes. So you have to stay inside and you have to sit in front of the TV, honey, because you outside is dangerous and lots of risks can happen. So I'm going to bar the door and you're going to be locked in. You're going to just sit. So it's, it's a, it is that, that allyship, that caretaking, it takes a form of what I think is good for you, not what you necessarily think you need, but what I think you need. I I really appreciate the the focus on the lay perspective also, because I think we've gotten so wrapped up in expertise. This and it's the same process. It's somebody else can think for me, and I'm going to allow them to think for me. And I, I've seen this over, and I, I know we're, we're at the end of an hour, so we should probably wrap, but um, I, when I was a young mom raising two kids, uh, and, and I took some time in between, I have 13 years between my middle kids, and then I have two more kids, and I saw how much parents in that interim depended on doctors, how much more parents yes. started depending on doctors to tell them how to parent. Just yes. in that that little thirteen years, it's not even a generation difference. No. But as a young mom versus as an older mom with with my second set of kids, the parents around me and the parenting culture was so much more expert driven. It wasn't as much about ask your mom and your grandma what to do with the baby. It was ask the doctor. And and I am concerned about this because there's. You mentioned also that I, and so here I'm, I'm like splintering in lots of directions. <laughs> very, no, just, there's, there's, there's so many places to, there, it, there's so much of it. Yeah, there is. And it's such a rich, it, I, I feel like there's so much to uncover and discuss. And one of the things that <clears throat> when you're talking about boundaries and you're talking about trusting yourself and talking about how you can't change others, I, I think these are really important concepts that relate to emotional and moral maturity as you were also talking about it's like you you grow up and you recognize that i'm not going to be able to change him but i can change how i am or i'm not going to be able to do anything to to control the other but i can control how i interact with the other and so it's up to me to control myself and set my own boundaries and when you have the people who set themselves up as the experts in teaching people how to cope with relationship, these therapists who are now being taught that they need to be activists and use their clients as a clinical opportunity to change society, then you have this ultimate hypocrisy. And it's a, I can set different rules for myself and I, and I can undervalue your agency in pursuit of the goal that I have. And it's, it's just it. I, I don't know. I, there's a lot of thoughts. I'm yeah going lots well, of directions. <laughs> but your point about um, reliance on expertise in parenting mm-hmm. um, is is really well taken because I think that 
And parenting is one spoke of that problem. I think we do have a big societal problem in outsourcing our thinking to mm-hmm. alleged experts. Yeah. Alleged. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, I know everybody's going to be in a different place, but after, after what we went through with, um, um, the so-called pandemic and the government's uh, heavy-handed crackdown and abrogation of civil liberties, constitutional rights. Um, I and and just looking at you know, looking at how wrong the medical industry was about the um, the disease itself and and. Um, you know the wildly exaggerated claims of danger, which were never true, and in and in fact, we we actually did know that early on. It's not like it took two years for us to figure that we did know that. We knew a few months into um, people uh, the coronavirus spreading around, we already knew that children almost never died from this, like n- almost never, right? Right. And yet, even two years into that, if you said that, you risk being suspended on Facebook or uh, you, you know, I've seen countless people, people I know, but people I've just observed online who were thrown out of parenting groups, who were thrown out of um, uh, public school meetings, um, people who lost their jobs, um, doctors who were brought up on, on, on medical malpractice charges by their licensing boards for refusing to push the vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, even though we already knew a lot of these things, it just didn't matter. And so I don't trust, I have very, very little trust in any so-called expert anymore. Um, and it's not a place that I like to be in because I think we should we should have a robust re- medical research industry that gives us factual information. We should have, we should be able to, to rely on, on credentialed experts to do the sort of analysis, higher level scientific analysis that we lay people can't do every day. Um, but I don't trust them anymore mm-hmm. um, because they're very easily fooled and they're just as much a herd animal as any other human is. And to give you one example of why I, um, I don't think, why I tell people, you know, you don't need a, a medical degree to recognize personality disordered behavior is even those with medical degrees get it wrong. And in some cases, I think more than they get it right. An example would be the common misdiagnosis. Everyone watching this, I'm sure, um, has either said or they know people, they've been in conversations where somebody says, oh, yeah, uh, he, oh, he's so bipolar. You know, one minute he's, one minute he's happy-go-lucky and having fun, and the next minute he's screaming and, and accusing you all these names, bipolar, bipolar, bipolar. Well, it, and tell tell me if you if you agree with this or you disagree if you're somewhere in the middle. Um, they're not describing bipolar, which is manic depression. They're describing something that sounds a lot more like borderline to mm-hmm, me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. borderline personality disorder, unstable, uh, dysregulated emotions that happen very very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, one of the most common misdiagnoses by professionals, by by doctors and by therapists is giving people a bipolar diagnosis when actually um, the real diagnosis may be borderline personality disorder. And if not full borderline personality disorder, then, you know, an emotional dysregulation, 
uh, having to do with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, but manic depression and is not a personality disorder. Um, and it's the treatments for these are very, very different. So, you know, people will say, you know, Josh, you can't diagnose, you can't diagnose. No, no, no. Well, first of all, I can't actually diagnose because what that word means, and we have to have a definitional <laughs> conversation. What that word means is that judgment, which a credentialed professional makes that therefore guides the course of your medical treatment and is entered into your medical chart, right? Mm -hmm. That is what diagnosis is or your therapeutic mm -hmm. chart. Mm -hmm. I don't have the power to do that, yeah. right? My hands can't touch anyone's medical chart. My hands can't touch their mental health records. Right. You know, uh, so even, even if, even if, even if one doesn't like what I say, it's not actually accurate to say you're abusively diagnosing without right. credentials. No, because yeah. I'm only, I'm giving you my opinion. It's just mm -hmm. my opinion. Um, but why are you going to trust a general, any person can go into a general practitioner, a medical doctor who is not a mental health specialist, and they get diagnosed with major depression or panic disorder or Tourette syndrome or bipolar. I mean, a lot of these diagnoses come from GPs. I don't know the percentage of them, but a good number of them do. You know, And if I know that people are going to go in there and they're going to get a, and I've seen so many cases of this and people I've known over the years, they get a bipolar diagnosis from their doctor and they get put on lithium. Mm. They're not manic depressive they've got, it's trauma related. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're making a really good point about <clears throat> the low consistency in some mental health diagnoses and, and the lack of consistency. And I think that that's a real concern for a lot of people because these things stick because they make an impact on the way the person sees themselves and interacts with the, the world around them. And because they stick to your medical chart and can have repercussions for you down the line. So uh, that is one of my concerns is that there's, there, there are issues with, with applying them consistently. Yeah. And we, we may, we are, I'm not sure if this is true, but yours and my concerns may be aimed in opposite directions on this one to some degree, because, um, when I, when people, a lot of people say they're concerned about, um, well, the claim is these are stigmatizing diagnoses mm. where we hear all about stigma, all the stigma about mental health. Leslie, I don't know how it looks from your point of view, but I don't see any stigma associated with mental health diagnoses at all anymore. I don't think it's a social stigma that I'm specifically concerned about. I think it's more about how it folds into the individual's identity. And so- one of the things that I became concerned about when I was, uh, when I was, uh, when my daughters were preteens was hearing the other moms talking about their kids' diagnoses. So they'd be talking about, they, they were taking their kids to therapy. They were, um, talking openly about illnesses and, you know, she's got this chronic thing and she's got that. And you could just see the little girl, you know, uh, falling dramatically over the couch in a pose of, you know, uh, yes, me. And it's just, you, you have, you've given them something to fold into their identity at that point. I think we over therapize, uh, what our normal life processes in a way that, that creates yeah. an identification and an attachment with those labels. So I'm, that's more the, the direction that I 
I understand. find myself concerned. If you tell a, a, a client or a patient you have this, what does that do then to their to their identity development? And I, again, I yeah. think it's kind of a mixed bag because sometimes it can be really helpful if you can describe for somebody something like you you describe the the recognition of a. like a categorical description for the experience that you went through in childhood that your family went through. If you tell somebody uh, what's going on with you is that you have OCD, then they can be like, Oh my gosh, I'm so relieved to hear that there's a, that there's a way to describe this, that I'm not the only person in the world who's broken in this particular way. There's a way for me to conceptualize what's going on with me. And there's a way for you to help me. So there's utility in, in these categories, these labels, these diagnoses. I think that it's not. In it, proper context and in, in the right measure. In the right measure, in the proper context and for specific diagnoses more than others. And it's yep. not that I just think it's a terrible thing. I'm just concerned with the way it's being wielded and, and with the, if, if, if I can, and, and I don't know if this is true, but I know it's true from my training. If mental health professionals look down on high functioning people who seek mental health care at the same time as the mental health field is becoming more and more destigmatized, as you point out. So more and more high functioning people who want a little help are accessing that care. Then you're creating people who are serving people that they don't respect very much. Uh, and yes. there's a problem there and there's, uh, you know, and so I feel like yes. it's a giant can to unpack and open up, but just, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of moving parts to this and different ways to, uh, I don't know, redirect the whole conversation or maybe just have the conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, this is as, and I, I know we're we're coming up to the end here, um, but it 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 brings to mind. This is the kind of thing where um, these topics are so complicated. You know, two people like you and I, or or you know, you and another guest, we you know, you could actually do a seminar series on this stuff. You could say so we're not going to try to pack it into an hour. We're going to do five <laughs> of these. And one of them, we're going to talk about social stigma. The next one, we're going to talk about personal responsibility versus victimization. The next one, we're going to talk about, um, you know, uh, should we be more focused on empowering individuals or should we be more focused on holding up society, societal norms, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it is very complicated. And I, I think all of this, that's... We we say this. I say this on um, on the show a lot on disaffected. That you know what animates what animates the abusive and neglectful childhood home is now animating our public lives. It's it's our public culture, our media culture, our our politicians, and our relationship to our politicians so closely mirrors my experience growing up under a borderline and a narcissist growing up in a cluster B household, you know, and, and like most families who have a person in the family like this, it's not the only person in the family, mm-hmm. you know, the, mm-hmm. the tra- these are trauma, basically trauma induced, um, personality states. Mm-hmm. Um, and they run in families. Um, and it just, it just alarms me. Well, I mean, I'm used to it now, but 
I, I really do think that 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 traumatizing and deranging kind of relationship in a family like that is is basically the position we're in as American citizens with our government and with our media and medical institutions. And it 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 frightens me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm it frightens me a lot. I'm not very hopeful, I got to tell you. Mm. I, I I keep trying, you know, um, you, you know, we, you do what you do. Benjamin does what he does. You know, I'm going to continue doing what I do because there's, I feel that I have no other choice, but um, I have a hard time being hopeful, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. It, and I don't know how much of that is, I don't know how much of that is me accurately seeing how bad the situation is, because I do think I do think it is quite bad. I think we're in a very bad way culturally. Mm -hmm. um, but I also don't know how much of that is my, and again, forgive it, but to be accurate, not not to be sort of emotionally flowery. I don't know how much of that is my own trauma reaction, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, my personality was was formed in this way. And again, descriptively not, you know, not as a uh, a means of, you know, asking for sympathy or or it, it, it making excuses, but I I carry quite a bit of damage. I was significantly damaged by, um, excuse me, uh, by my upbringing, and it mm -hmm. and it affects the way I see the world, and I try to be really cognizant of that. But it is difficult for a person like me sometimes to separate out when I'm seeing accurately from when I'm projecting from my own fear. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a conversation maybe a lot of other people could start thinking about having for themselves too. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that that is uh, it's a metaphor in some ways for what's what's happening on the larger scale when you're talking about this sense of being damaged, and yet people who watch your show and listen to you get so much out of what you're doing and you're displaying that, I hope that so. resilience, the humor, um, the, your, your analytical power and your willingness to be vulnerable despite these things. And, and also something we didn't even get into this, but you talked about how who changes and how, what makes a person willing to recognize certain things in themselves and what, and, and you are putting that all on display in a way that touches people in a really personal way and helps a lot of people connect to you and to themselves and to others and just recognize that, that human process. And when you describe this sense of feeling damaged, when, if you were damaged by, I don't, I don't mean, I don't, I don't, I don't mean that. I don't want, I'm no, not asking I, people I, to pity me or, I don't or anything think like that. that. He, I don't think you are, but you're talking about like shape being shaped in ways by things that are abusive. And so if we're talking on a cultural level, as a metaphor, each of us is shaped by yeah. the things we've experienced and our culture is being shaped by the things that it's experiencing. And if our culture can yes. be said to be experiencing on a larger scale, something similar to the thing that you're describing, then the culture itself is also damaged, but also has these complex, beautiful things shining through. I mean, there's still so much to be so much to receive in this. I, I don't know. I'm being really, I'm, I'm being a Pollyanna. I'm looking for the resilience no, you're not. and the I don't, shining I, light. But... I don't think that's fair, actually. Okay. I think that's, that's a, that's a too harsh self-criticism. I don't okay. think you're being a Pollyanna. Yeah. 
Um, because look, the, um, there are only, it seems to me, two choices for what to do when we find ourselves in this state, when as an individual, when you find yourself in a state of, well, I'm, I'm heavily damaged, I'm heavily traumatized by my childhood, or as a society, our culture is heavily damaged. We've been pushed in a narcissistic and, and abusive and self-abusive direction. There are only two choices. You either resign yourself to it and become it mm -hmm. or let it take over, or you push back against it. And I can't not push back. I spent a lot of time um, in my younger years wallowing in it. Uh, I can still wallow, <laughs> you know. Um, self pity yeah. is 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 often is sometimes a consequence of childhood abuse. You know, you you learn to feel really bad, really Absolutely. bad for yourself, right? Mm -hmm. I, I I I can still do that. I still have mm -hmm. my my moments of doing that. Um, but I I'm at least aware of it when I do it. Um, but I feel compelled because I know that now that I know that there's a name for it, I know that there are, there are causes for it and there are, there are ways to live better. I know that it doesn't have to be this way. It's not a law of the universe mm -hmm. that our culture has to keep going in this way. And it's not a law of the universe that we all are doomed necessarily to repeat every bad thing our parents did and because mm -hmm. i know that and because i don't want to be there anymore mm -hmm. i feel compelled to keep pushing back against it and to, to talk about it and to try to bring other people to awareness of it mm -hmm. um so that they will talk about it and push back against it too because i just don't i'm not satisfied with the world we're living in and i'm not i don't want us to stay here mm -hmm. even though i'm not a hopeful person I think this is all we can do. Yeah. Oh, and it's a, it's a, I guess a recognition of the, the complexity, I keep saying that, but it's complexity, like this ambivalence, this mixture between the bad and the good. It's not, if it's not, it's not all broken or all great. It's not all bad or all good. It's there, there has to be a marriage of the two and a combination. And sometimes it's going to look bad more than it looks good and sometimes the other but uh yep. just because we've experienced certain things or we've done certain things th there's there's still potential for joy for redemption for love for connection for at least good conversation and i think that that's yes. true of of all of us in in this culture and individually yeah. Gosh, I feel like I have so many thoughts. I, I really enjoy talking to you. I'm yeah. my my brain is moving faster than my tongue. <laughs> yeah, and my brain is not is not moving as deftly as <laughs> I would like it to this week. Well, thank you so much for doing this and having this conversation. I'm sorry you've been sick, but you you came through and thank you for for doing it despite oh being pretty I, late I really up. appreciate the invitation. We will we'll, we will have to talk again probably yeah. several times. There's a lot to talk about. I would love that. Do you um, have anything you want yeah. to plug before we go? So you can, or before we hit the off button. Well, um, if, if people are interested in, um, you know, in, in the point of view that, that I take on this, um, you know, the weekly show is called disaffected. 
Um, it's actually, it's a, it's, it's not just me. The other half of the show is, uh, my friend and producer, Kevin Hurley. Uh, and it was actually his idea, uh, to do a show, not mine. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, we do that together. Um, uh, part of that, we run a Substack, which is disaffectedpod.substack.com. Uh, I do writing on there, um, as well. And I'm also available uh, for coaching and consulting with people who have uh, difficult relationship issues, um, work home, otherwise, um, at joshuaslocum.net. But our show comes out on Rumble at 8 p.m. Saturdays and then runs on YouTube at 9 on Sundays. And there's live chat with each of them. And we um, we have a good crowd. A lot of people come in and and uh, and talk to each other. So mm-hmm. it's 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 nice to see. That's great. I was just uh, out with some friends last night and one of, I told one of my girlfriends I was going to be talking with you today and she said, I love him. I never miss a show. So it gets around. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Well, um, to that friend, I apologize that I did not give the quality performance today with Leslie that <laughs> I, I, I am. I, I normally try to because I'm still half um, sick in the head. I mean, not mentally this time, but uh, uh, with flu. So thank you. That's I, that's nice to know. Yeah, I think it's very good, very high quality. I, I really appreciate the conversation and I look forward to the next one. Me too, Leslie. Thank you. Thanks.